Right, if you would, open your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. You were just in Luke 1. Luke 1 was a Savior's coming. Luke 2 is going to be a Savior's born. Again, Todd was sick, so it was kind of last minute. He threw his notes at me. You know, they're a little bit different than, than mine, of course. The way they're structured, the words he uses, you know, are more than two syllables. You know, I kind of just stick to those simple words that I can spell, and, which is few. So this is kind of like a, a, a hybrid. These notes are a hybrid, Todd's and mine. And you talk to people who's got one of those hybrid vehicles, you know, that's partly gas engine and partly electric. They're always like, I love the, the gas part. I just hate the electric. Or I love the electric. I hate the gas. So in this hi hybrid sermon, the parts you don't like, those are Todd's parts. <laughs> okay? Just, just know that. So a Savior is born, Luke Two, this passage before us today may very well be the most familiar complete passage. You know, we always have complete verses yanked out of, or not complete verses, but verses snatched out of context that are well known. This passage is fairly well known, and it's mainly because every year millions upon millions of people, possibly even billions, read this passage right here in Luke's Gospel. They read it every year. Now certainly many of them do not in any way believe Jesus as the promised Messiah, the only Savior to men, but at Christmas time, people read this passage, or at least have it read to them. Even back in 1965 on the Charlie Brown Christmas special, Linus quoted from this chapter verbatim on public TV. That wouldn't happen today. But anyway, the passage we're dealing with today, it, to many of you it may be straightforward, it may be quite familiar, but trust me when I say there's a lot of things in this passage that, that are just more than we realize. You know, so let's kind of jump in them and see what we can kind of dig out of this today. Luke 2, again, a Savior is born in this text. It's the second part of this series that Todd had kind of structured the long-awaited hope for the world is born, but they're not looking for Him. They don't make room for Him. And even His life bears out, they don't receive Him. But big picture, big picture, God knew this. Big picture, even His rejection is part of God's plan. So, let's just jump in verse 1. It says, In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus, that all the world should be registered. So Luke here begins. You know, Luke is a, is a historian. He's a, a doctor. But Luke here, a, a physician. But he's given us a bit of, of details that's going to help us date the birth of the Messiah. You know, now we do not know the exact day. We don't know the month or the exact year. But we are given, you know, a little frame that we can kind of work into here. And so this verse is, is, is very helpful for this. Okay, so most of you know a little bit about Caesar Augustus, maybe, the Caesar Augustus we read here. But if you don't, we'll kind of just jump into this a little bit at a time. This will be worth it. This will be worth it, I hope. This man was born, Caesar Augustus was born like in 19... Oh, 19. This man was born in, in B.C. 63. That was Todd's part. He messed that up. I, I didn't catch that. But anyway, he was born, his name was Octavius. 
And so many of us know him as Octavian. Octavian. He's the son of a woman named Attiah. And her mother was Julia, Julia Caesar's sister. So that makes him, you know, really the grandnephew of Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar, for whatever reason, took a liking to Octavian, adopted him, and also made him heir to the throne just before he died. B.C. 44. You history buffs will know this. Julius Caesar was murdered by Brutus. You know, that's that A2 Brute, you know, in the plays that y'all may do in school. A power struggle broke out between these three men on who would secede Julius Caesar. It was between a man named Lepidus, Octavian, and Mark Anthony. That Lepidus kind of fell away pretty quickly. He dropped out of the race. But Octavian and Mark Anthony continued this struggle. Now, Mark Anthony was married to Octavian's adopted sister and basically kind of married into the family lineage, married into that family dynasty. But you, must, you may know that Mark Anthony began to be seduced and actually left his wife and, and chased after a woman named Cleopatra, queen of Egypt. So Mark Anthony became more interested, more interested in the affairs of Egypt than he was the affairs in Rome. So that kind of left Octavian there to, to you know, grab the reins. And over time, he defeated Mark Anthony. He defeated him in 13 years after Julius Caesar's death in B.C. 31. And then Mark Anthony and his wife Cleopatra both committed suicide together. So that left Octavian, who was known here as Caesar Augustus, as emperor, the one who actually seceded Julius Caesar. So in, in 29 B.C., when he has became the sole emperor of the land, there is no more struggle. They actually declared him to be Caesar, uh, to be king, you know, basically to be almost as if some kind of revered one or godlike status that he was given. He got the name Caesar Augustus, which is translated as revered one, exalted one, a title often having religious significance. And they were known as gods by many of their citizens. You know, they were revered that way and carried themselves that way. And he reigned until his death in AD 14 when he was succeeded by Tiberius Caesar. Tiberius Caesar will be the one who reigns during Jesus' ministry. So you have Julius Caesar, Augustus Caesar, and Tiberius Caesar. That's the kind of the characters that were given. But it is funny to me how Luke introduces this man, Caesar Augustus, who claimed to be a god. And this man, he, he controlled Rome during the time of what was called the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. So he considered himself a god, and he basically just uh, commanded over a peaceful reign. And then you contrast that with this child that's coming on the scene who is going to be God in the flesh who is the Prince of Peace, the one who brings peace to mankind, the one through whom we have peace with God through Jesus Christ. So, you know, you got this Caesar Augustus and this facade of Godhead, I'm a God, and everything's peaceful, I deliver, I bring peace, and then you have the one that truly brings peace and truly is God. Kind of an interesting little contrast. 
But it is amazing to see how God is providentially working all the time. He, he, he didn't just start doing this, you know, a year or two before the birth of Jesus. He was doing this for decades and centuries and centuries. He, God has always been orchestrating the events to bring about His plan and purpose at the perfect time. And that's what we see here. So Octavian here issues an edict that all the world should be registered. And all the world doesn't mean, what about the Mayans in South America? That's not what he's talking It's all the world refers to all the, uh, the, basically the entire Roman Empire. That's what he's referring to. And to be fair, they consider themselves to be ruling over the entire world. All the world. So the Jews here would have been exempt from this had it been a military census that was taken. Because the Jews were exempt from serving in the military of Rome. So we know this wasn't a military census that was being taken. This census was for the purpose of taxation. Taxation. So we continue to read here. This was verse 2. This was the first registration when Quirinius, the governor of Syria. This was the first registration. So that means he, there was going to be more than one, right? That's obvious. And so Luke specifically brings this here. And this is so ironic because Acts 5, Gamaliel actually speaks of another census. Again, under the reign of this Quirinius as governor of Syria. And so people will look at that and say, well, the, the timelines don't match up. You know, look at there, look at there. But look, Luke wrote Luke. And Luke wrote Acts. I'm pretty sure he, knew, he, he got these two things separate on purpose. This was the first registration, and the one we read about in Acts 5 will be the second registration. Beside the fact that this is inspired by God, Luke penned both books, and so he wouldn't have kind of got his wires crossed. So the Jewish historian Josephus who, who writes about that Acts 5 census, you know, makes note that there's a rebellion there. And so that's one of the places that the uh, critics like to run to and say this, this, this doesn't harmonize with what we're reading here. It's two completely different censuses. This one here is the first census, 14 years before the one mentioned in Acts 5. Now this census in those days, because communication wasn't quick as it is today, it would have took quite some time. And so this would have took maybe a span of several years. And Quirinius, the governor here, see this, this decree was issued from Caesar, but it was actually going to be carried out by the governors and carried out by Herod and those guys. They are, they're actually the ones who carry this out. So, take all that, and it, we read about it here in verse 3, and it says, And all went to be registered, each to his own town. That wasn't necessarily the command from Caesar. That would be how uh, Quirinius or how Herod saw fit to carry this out. They were just told, to, here's the job, do it, and they're, they're the ones who, who dictate how it's, how it's carried out. Now, it would have been highly uncommon for the Romans to require them to go back to their hometown. That's why many think this is Herod. Herod's the mastermind behind this. He was an Edomite. He wasn't a Jew. Scripture's very clear about that. 
And he was consistently trying to find ways to bolster support, to, to keep the Jews, you know, from, from wanting to oust him. One of the ways he did that was he beautified the temple. He would take tax money and he would just invest it in the, the temple. That's why when you read about the first temple, the first century temple that Jesus, you know, in, in the times of Jesus' ministry, is referred to as Herod's temple. He actually took it from where it was and just lavished, he just lavished it over and over and over. But it pleased the Jewish people. And so he got them to return to their hometown, to the place where their clans come from, in order to be counted. Look, genealogies were, were something they took very serious back in those days. It's highly important to the Jewish people. So they knew exactly what tribe they, they, they descended from. And so here we have Mary. We're going to have Joseph. And they both descended from the line of uh, David, from, both from the line of Judah. So they're going to go to Bethlehem as we're going to pick up and read here. And so Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. We'll just, we'll just stop there. So Joseph and Mary both lived in Nazareth. That's pretty clear from Luke chapter 1. And Bethlehem is going to be about six miles south of Jerusalem. And Nazareth is about 70 miles north of Jerusalem. So this is going to be about a 70 to an 80 mile hike from Nazareth all the way home to Bethlehem. That would have taken, as many speculate, that could have took well over a week. Sometime a week to week and a half. His wife's pregnant. We don't know what kind of pace they, you know, they were able to journey. Uh, you know, and then again, it's not a straight, a straight shot either. They did have to kind of navigate around some more dangerous places. So many assume this took them about a, a week or so with Mary being as far along in this pregnancy. And Bethlehem here, if you notice, is referred to as the city of David. And it's often in, in, in Scripture when we read the Old Testament, we read, you know, that Jerusalem is referred to as the city of David. But here, Bethlehem, this small, quaint village, is referred to as the city of David. This is, pick up on this, this will be something you're familiar with. 1 Samuel 16, we're told Samuel was sent to Bethlehem to the house of Jesse to anoint David to be king. So David hailed from Bethlehem, specifically Bethlehem Ephrata. So Bethlehem was David's hometown, and Joseph, as well as Mary, was from that lineage of Judah, from the Davidic lineage. So why all this work, why all this work to get them to Bethlehem? Could he just merely have said that Jesus was born and moved on? Because that's really how Matthew, Matthew pretty much just says they were in Bethlehem when the child was born. Really doesn't get into the, the weeds on how they got from Nazareth to or, you know, what forced them to go from Nazareth to Bethlehem? Well, I think Luke does that just to show us how sovereign God is over his creation. I mean, he, he orchestrating events to get them from Nazareth to Bethlehem all along. I mean, from, from having this Octavian, you know, basically win this power struggle so that he puts his men in place whether it's Quirinius, whether it's Herod, 
And so that's how they carry all this, how they carry out the census out. It's just amazing how God is working all this out, all because Micah 5 tells us why being in Bethlehem was important. Micah 5 verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrata, who were too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old and from ancient days. So the Messiah had to come from Bethlehem. You know, when the wise men visit Herod, saying they saw the star, you know, Herod, he assembled all the religious leaders and said, hey, where, where's the Messiah to be born? And they said, Bethlehem. It was well known that the Messiah would come from Bethlehem. And here we have the Lord getting this couple from Nazareth to Bethlehem. So let's get all this straight here. Jesus had to be born in Bethlehem at this time. Octavian had to be adopted by Julius Caesar. He had to be appointed to be the primary heir. Julius had to be murdered. Octavian had to, had to defeat Mark Anthony and Cleopatra. Octavian had to become emperor. He had to make this decree to register the people for taxation. He had to do it at the perfect time. An Edomite king, Herod, had to be willing and wanting to persuade the Jews to comply, using them to visit their hometown. All this so that Joseph had to be in Bethlehem. He's a big God. So do you believe God is sovereign over mankind? Absolutely. And that's one of the things this passage here teaches us. But God brought all this about just to fulfill one prophecy. Micah 5, 2. That's what's so mind-blowing. All this just to fulfill that one prophecy. So the question is, you know, it's, it's unlikely that that Mary would have had to go. It's usually the males who were required to be counted. So the question is, why did Mary go? Well, one answer is God's providence, of course, is why she went. Maybe a few more guesses on why she went would be this. She knew that her time to give birth was soon. Joseph did not want to be away from her during this uh, crucial time in her life. And he also had to comply with the decree of Caesar. So, you know, Joseph took along his pregnant, very pregnant wife. I mean, he was a godly man, so he would have been obedient to the government, as we read about today. And he would have complied with Caesar's command, decree to come and be counted. Also, I think we can be fairly confident that the people were slandering Mary already in her hometown of Nazareth. And so perhaps, you know, Joseph looked to not leave her there alone during this crucial point in her time. So he, he took her with him maybe as a way to save her from further ridicule when he wasn't there to uh, pull alongside her. But one thing I do want to, to stress, I hope we get this. this. Them traveling from Nazareth to Bethlehem was not the design of Joseph and Mary. Okay, it's not. Mary and Joseph leaving Nazareth, heading to Bethlehem, just so the child could be born in Bethlehem, wasn't the idea to cover up some kind of infidelity or to further some conspiracy. No, they were decreed to go. That's what Scripture says. 
Caesar Augustus decreed this to happen, and they were instructed to go to their hometown. They had to go. This wasn't their idea, no coup, no trying to cover up something that wasn't there. And Again, just looking at the this, this sovereign hand of God, from Octavian to Quirinius to Herod, Proverbs says that the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he wills, right? God is sovereign over all this. I know I've said that a lot, but you have to see it. And, and while they were in Bethlehem, Scripture tells us here, the time came for her to give birth. Verse 6, And while they were there in Bethlehem, the time came for her to give birth. This was not by chance. They didn't just get there and then just... This was not by chance. This was, this was of God. Then we keep reading, And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them at the end. This is the greatest birth of all time. Of all time. The birth of a child by a virgin. The birth of the long-awaited Redeemer. The long-awaited King. The Messiah. The Christ. This was big. And notice it does say specifically that this was, Jesus was Mary's firstborn child. You did pick up on that, I hope. So that means she would have more. Matthew says as much in Matthew 12. So despite the Catholic doctrine of Mary's perpetual virginity, that doesn't seem to hold up with Scripture. Jesus was her firstborn. Jesus and Joseph would be Jesus' legal father, not his biological father. He would be his legal father, right? Okay, so we're all on the same page there. And it says that Mary wrapped him in swaddling clothes. The one thing I noticed through this, as she gave birth to her firstborn, and pretty much she wrapped him in swaddling clothes, she laid him in a manger, it really doesn't seem like there's anyone there to assist Mary. As, as, as such a, a young girl who's probably been scorned by her community and, and those back in her hometown, you know, you read, about, you read in Scripture of other people, and they have these handmaidens or they have these nurses that come and help, but Mary seems to do it alone. You know, maybe her and her husband Joseph, and highly likely he wouldn't much help. <laughs> but anyway, she seems to go at this alone, and, and so you just kind of get this loneliness, felt, you know, kind of feel going through this birth. So she wrapped him in, in swaddling cloths. This does not refer to the type of cloth, but actually more or less the purpose of the cloth. Mary probably would have had these prepared for some months before this event happened. I'm sure she seems like a very good, a godly mother, and I'm sure she was prepared to, to bring forth this son. They were used to wrap the baby tightly and to keep the limbs straight. They say this is still practiced over in the Middle East in some areas, even to today. But it, it's interesting, and I don't know that there's a parallel here, but there's a lot of things that are book-ended, you know, kind of book-ended in the Gospel of Luke. You have Mary's mother wrapping him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger. Thirty years later, Jesus will again be wrapped in a linen shroud and laid in a tomb. So I don't know if that's just something to kind of think about. You know, what, 
that actually takes us from his birth to where his ultimate purpose for coming to die, to be in the tomb, to raise again on the third day. So he's wrapped here. He's laid in a manger. This is a feeding trough for animals. This is why many suppose that he was born in a stable. But the Jews did have mangers in the corners of the field. They did have mangers in caves. And it's interesting, but early Christian, you go read first and second Christian history, whatever that's worth, they tend to lead toward a cave birth of Jesus. I know that may wreck the mental picture you have, the little nativity scene you got or you got in your yard. But you'll be okay. So he laid him here in a manger, laid him here in this feeding trough. A feeding trough. What's he say in John 6? He says in John 6, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. He is in the feeding trough. You know, I just thought that was somewhat interesting there. And so the reason they're in the stable, or perhaps a cave, we may not know which, but we do know why they're there. They're there because there was no room for them in the inn. They sit in the Holiday Inn, in case your mind ran to that. That's not what this is referring to either. The Greek word for in here is used three times. Two times by Luke. Okay, it's used here, and it's translated as in. We read about this in Luke 22, verse 10. This is as, as Jesus is getting prepared for the Passover. He says this. He tells his disciples, Behold, when you've entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, and tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room that I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Okay, so Luke uses it twice. One time it's translated exact same word. One time it's translated in. One time it's translated guest room. Mark uses, this is the third and final time this word is used. Mark 14, 14, again speaking of that Passover event. That's the context of Mark 14. The teacher says, where is my guest room? that I may eat the Passover with my disciples. Okay, so it's used three times. Two times it's translated guest room, one time translated in. And if you have an ESV, you'll note the footnote. It says there this word could read guest room. So that does seem to fit. You know, just they, they went to their hometown. No one had a guest room. No one had any room in their guest room to make room for this young couple nine months pregnant no one made room for them none i mean in that that language no room is is like absolute absolute like no room is this selfishness that they won't take them in is this scorn that there's this pregnant woman pregnant out of wedlock is is that, that's what's going on here I don't want to read between the lines, but, you know, they always say in America that chivalry is dead. <laughs> Seems pretty bad here, doesn't it? I mean, I'm not the best, but I'd like to think that if someone was young and that pregnant that I would, I'd let her in and I'd, I'd go somewhere else. But no, they sent her away. Maybe this was due to the census. Maybe, maybe just the area was full. Maybe that's just the, what we're meant to, to read here. So there's no room for them 
in the end. Verse 8, And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were feared, they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in a manger. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes lying in a manger. And suddenly there was, the, there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God, saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom He is pleased. Shepherds. In that same region of Bethlehem. You know, it's actually... Some, some actually talk about Micah 5. It says, You, O Bethlehem, Ephrata. That can be taken two ways. It's, it's actually signifying which Bethlehem, because there was a couple Bethlehems. You know, we have town names that are the same across the states. This actually tells you which Bethlehem. Bethlehem, Ephrata. Some people say, No, no, no. Ephrata is referring to the agricultural you know, side of Bethlehem. So she's out there, away from the, the city. But either way, in the same region of Bethlehem, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch. That's present tense. They're watching them, keeping watch over their flock by night. And shepherds, again, are not held in high regard. You know, we say that often, but I think we forget it, you know, because David was a shepherd, and he was one of the greatest men of God, and, and our Lord called himself the Good Shepherd so we, we have a different view of shepherds than I think they did. And so if man was writing this story, then the birth of the Son of God, when God himself would take on flesh, it would have been witnessed by kings and priests, right? Not, not the lowest of the society, not in a cave, so to speak, or just wrapped in his swaddling clothes, laid in a manger, in a field, by themselves, among shepherds. Shepherds are the first to be told of this great grand Savior being born. Now, knowing the proximity to Jerusalem, remember earlier I said Bethlehem and Jerusalem is only about six miles apart? It's very possible that these sheep were sheep that was kept for temple sacrifices. That's very, very possible. So wouldn't that be something? That the Lamb of God that came into the world was revealed first to shepherds taking care of the lambs headed to the sacrifice. You know, it's often been uh, a criticism that this couldn't have happened in the winter. That's why we know December is, uh, you know, not, 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 not the right date. Because shepherds were not in the field in winter. Look, I'm not defending a December birth. But we do, because <laughs> we don't know the exact day, but, but we do know this. That criticism research shows that sheep were kept in the fields only between November and April. That's the only time they would have been in the field. Other than, that's because it was a rainy season in Israel then, and it was easier and, and they were more capable of grazing in the open fields and on those grassy hills during that time of rain. And, and besides, their winter is, is mild, kind of like, like here. 
you know, even just this week, for instance, uh, the lows over there have been in the upper 40s. The highs been in the 60s. You know, here it is a day before Christmas, you know, a day before December 25th, I guess, the 24th. Quick math. But anyway, so imagine these shepherds' surprise, right? Imagine their surprise when an angel from God appears to them. Like we have no idea who this angel was. You know, many want to speculate and, and ask these kind of questions. It's probably Gabriel, if you ask me, and I had to pick one. That'd be the one I picked. He's the one who appeared to Zechariah. He's the one that appeared to Mary. Highly likely he's the one who appeared to these uh, shepherds, but we're just not really privy to that information. But if the appearance of the angels was not enough, you see the next little phrase there. It says, the glory of the Lord shone around them. Or it can be translated, the splendor of the Lord blazed around them. Very few have been allowed to see such a, a spectacular scene. And yet these men, these shepherds, the lowest of society, were given such a view. We read this, this phrase and it said these men were filled with great fear. Just to throw a couple of Greek words at you that you'll probably get. They, they, they were megas. Phobos. You know what mega? Mega is great. That's an easy one, right? Phobos, that's where we get the word phobia. Arachnophobia, that's intense fear of spiders. You know, they were petrified. These shepherds who were, who were men's men, they were tough. They were petrified when this angel showed up. Which, again, cuts against the grain of modern day um, accounts of people running in angels and he's just in the pastor's seat and we're just listening to Rick and Bubba or whatever. You don't... That's nonsense. Every place in Scripture you see where there's an angel, they fall down on their knees just petrified. And so the angel here tells them not to fear. Fear not. Fear not. That, that's common language from an angel to men. And he says, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news. I bring you good news. That's the Greek word where we get evangelize. It's the Greek word where we get the word gospel. I bring you the good news of Jesus Christ. That's what the angels tell these shepherds. And he calls it good news of great joy. And certainly only the gospel produces joy. And this gospel is for what? For all the people. So just think about that as a way the shepherds may have heard these words. You know, we remember Jesus came as a Jewish Messiah. So he definitely came as the Savior of the, the Jewish people, but not just the religious leaders, the shepherds too, but not just them. He also came as Savior to the world, to all people. We could read on down, but when they present Jesus to Simeon in the temple on down in, in Acts 2, he says there that they are, let me see if I can find it real quick. Anyway, <laughs> here it is, verse 30. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all the peoples a light for revelation for the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. The Lord Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, is the Savior of all people. He came into his own. His own did not receive him. 
Nevertheless, nevertheless, right? The offer that we read about here, this genuine offer that Jesus is the Messiah for all people, that is a genuine offer. We don't have to pull back from that. It's, it's for all who will believe, all who come unto me, come unto me, all who are, who are burdened and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You know, just knowing that man's depravity and knowing that man's not going to, to run to him, that does not diminish the genuineness of the offer. It doesn't. And it, as a matter of fact, it, we're told about Abraham. In your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. He's the Savior of all people. But look just how compact verse 11 is. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. That's a very compact sentence. But can you imagine the personal way the shepherds would have taken this? For unto you, unto you, the Messiah, the Christ has been born. The one, those men, those shepherds whom all these sacrificial lambs that you've been raising and guarding for, for your career, all those lambs are pointing to this one. Unto you a Savior is born. A Savior who is Christ, the Messiah, the Lord. He's born in Bethlehem. The Lord who is the Messiah, who is the Savior, who is the Lord, has been born today in Bethlehem. Very compact sentence with tons of good news baked into it. So the Messiah had to be born in Bethlehem. We've covered that. A Savior who is Christ the Lord. So Jesus Christ is the, is the Savior. And that comes from the Greek word where we get our word soteriology. You know, this, the salvation, the study of salvation, that's where we get this word here. He is our Savior. Jesus is the long-awaited Savior, the long-awaited seed of the woman who was to crush the head of the serpent way back in Genesis 3. But Jesus is far more than that. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the long-awaited prophet of Moses that, that, that we read about in Deuteronomy. He's the star coming out of Jacob. He's the king of kings who is to reign on David's throne. He's the promised son of David. He's the promised branch of Jeremiah 23. He's a promised suffering servant in Isaiah 53. Fulfillment of the law. He's our sacrificial lamb. He's our blessing. He's our Sabbath. And the list goes on and on and on. He's the one the Jews had been waiting for, and these shepherds were the first to know. But He's more than just the Savior. He's the Lord, as it says here. Primarily, this word is used to refer to His deity, that He is God in, in the flesh. And John MacArthur writes this, quote, We tend to focus our attention at the Christmas on the infancy of Christ. The greater truth of the holiday is His deity. More astonishing than a baby in a manger is a truth that this promised baby is the omnipotent creator of the heavens and the earth. End quote. And Jesus stated a number of times from His own lips, I have come down from heaven. So God has taken God in the flesh has came down from heaven, took on flesh, and He alone will be our Savior. 
So he gives them this sign. This, these shepherds give the angel, possibly Gabriel, gives these shepherds this sign that they would go and you will see a, a baby lying in a manger in swaddling clothes. That is the sign they were giving. And swaddling clothes on a child was nothing abnormal at the time. You know, so they were likely to go to Bethlehem or, you know, and, and find another infant that had been born lying in swaddling clothes. But they would find precisely one that was lying in a manger. One. That would be the sign. That is without question the sign. So immediately, suddenly, as it reads here, suddenly, verse 13, following this angel's announcement, a heavenly host, a multitude, appears with the angel praising God, rejoicing at Jesus' birth. A celebration ensues. So if heaven can celebrate the birth of Jesus, then I'm, sure, I'm certain we should. Agree? So look, Jesus' birth is something to celebrate because heaven did. And let's take a real quick look at what they said, you know, so it says this multitude of heavenly hosts was praising God and what they were saying, they were saying glory to God in the highest. Glory speaks of His, His majesty in the highest, that is heaven, the highest place there is. And then on earth, on earth, peace among those to, with whom He is pleased. So you see, you get this, the highest of highs contrasted with earth. So glory to God in the highest of highs, glory to God in the lowest of lows, in heaven, on earth, glory to God. And then he breaks it, he goes even further. In peace among those with whom he's pleased. Heaven's offering praise while humans are said to be giving peace. This word peace speaks of the relationship between God and and, and humans, it's the Hebrew word in the Old Testament, shalom. This is speaking of salvation. There's, there's really no way around that. But who has this peace? That's the question. On earth, among those with whom he is pleased. Those with whom he is pleased. We well, may say, well, there's none that please God. That's what Scripture teaches. There's none that please God. Naturally, right? That is correct. But without faith, it is impossible to please God. Daryl Bach actually translates it this way. Peace among men of His good pleasure. The NIV translates it this way. Peace to those on whom His favor rests. That's the idea that we have here. This is a declaration of the sovereign grace of God. God gives peace, i.e. salvific peace, to those whom He's pleased to give it to. That's not a, a foreign thought to Scripture. John 5 says this. This is Jesus. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. John 5. They are praising God for the peace that He gives to men, undeserving men, as a grand display of His amazing grace. Then we see verse 17. And when they saw it, they made known the child, what the child had told. What, what, I can't read. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that they had been told them concerning the, the child. They made it known. You know, some com commentators actually say that these shepherds were the first New Testament evangelists. 
Interesting. So they kind of just scurried on about. You know, they went in haste, verse 16. They went in haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in the manger. So when they heard this good news about the coming Christ, the coming Lord, the Messiah, the Savior, they went in haste. They ran in haste to find this child. And they found him and they worshipped him. This chapter goes on to describe their visit to Mary and Joseph and this newborn child. We could read on in verse 20 there. It says, after the visit, Luke writes, the shepherds returned. They're glorifying God. They're praising God for all that they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. So there's this righteous rejoicing, and understandably so. The birth of the long-awaited Savior is worth celebrating. And these shepherds do this. The story doesn't stop there, of course. As far as Jesus' earthly life, it just begins here. For the next 30 to 35 years, he lived the perfect life in complete obedience to the Father, complete obedience to the law. And I'm sure many of you will know the final three and a half years or so of his life culminates in him being rejected as king, turned over to Roman Authorities by his own people and crucified on a Roman cross. But that didn't thwart God's plan. It actually fulfilled God's plan. Acts 4 reads this way. This is the church's prayer for boldness. It says, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with those Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. This was the plan of God, to pay for the sins of everyone who would ever believe, everyone who would ever be saved. Three days later, he rose from the grave, and he's alive today. At this time, he's ascended to the heaven. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father until his enemies are made a footstool for his feet. So today, we're anxiously awaiting His return when He would take His rightful place on David's throne and reign over this earth. So the King is coming, and the King has come. The Savior, the Christ, the Messiah has come. Look, the coming of the Savior is certainly something to celebrate. The angels did, the shepherds did, the wise men from the east did, Simeon did, Anna did, and the list goes on. It's worth celebrating the birth of the Savior. But the celebration in all those instances were not the celebration of just another baby being born. The angels said, For unto you... Is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Look, we are forever, forever indebted to God for sending a Redeemer, a righteous substitute to pay the penalty for our sins. But even He's more than that. I mean, He's King of Kings, He's the Lord of Lords, and He will soon return to take His rightful place on David's throne. And we will, He will reign over this earth. So the question is, as you hear this, and like I said earlier, millions and possibly even billions hear this every year. Every year they hear it. They're told it somewhere. Maybe it's in a play. Maybe it's on, it's on some cartoons or shows they have or just maybe they come to church. You know, they got 
people they call CEOs. That's what we were when we grew up, CEOs, they Christmas, Easter only. So uh, that was us. We were CEOs at a young age. So people come and they hear this story. Some hear the news. As the shepherds said in verse 16, when they heard this, they went with haste. They went with haste and found him and, and fell down out of his feet in worship. Some hear it, run in haste and worship. And some, as verse 18 says, some just wonder. And all who heard it, they wondered. They just wondered. Simply an interesting story. A reason to get together, a reason to be off work, a reason we're out of school. Or is this truly, truly one of the greatest days mankind has ever seen? So the question again is, looking at the responses of this group here, do you worship or do you wonder? Do you just read this and wonder, oh, that's neat that a, a virgin conceived. Yeah, I can see how all this works. Or do you worship? There's no middle ground. Where do you stand this morning is a question in relation to Jesus. Because He's came as a Savior. There's not coming another. And if you believe... If he has shown favor, as it says here, is he to whom he's pleased, he's shown favor. You believe the Bible says you're free from the penalty of all your sins. Praise God. You should praise God for that. However, if you do not believe, if you refuse to believe, then you are scripturally, on the, on the merit of Scripture, you're still the enemy of God. And when he returns, and he will you will be on the wrong end of a sword. And ultimately, you will be sentenced to pay for your own sins throughout eternity in the lake of fire. Scripture is very, very clear on that. So the command today is to repent. Change your mind about who you are. Change your mind about your own sins. Change your mind about who Jesus is. And flee to Him. Run in haste to Him in faith. As we close, I pray today that as we reflect on the birth of Christ here as Savior, that you've reflected on your own sinful conditions before God and that you right now trust that Christ alone is the answer for our sin. He alone. He's came. There's not coming another. He's came. He is the Messiah. He is the Savior. He is the Christ. He is the King. He is Lord. He is the Shepherd. He is God. That's a lot laying in that little manger. Just keep that in mind. So if you would, please stand.